All right, people. I know I'm pretty to look at, but I'm here to talk. Thank you. My gosh. I get it. It's the holiday season. It's snowing. We love it, don't we? I do, for sure. Really great to have you here this morning. Thanks for making it out in the weather. As you can see behind me on the screen, we're, we're moving out of the book of Acts for a month and moving into a Christmas series. So this Sunday, the 4th, the 11th, the 18th. So uh, Noah and Corbett on the 18th, Noah 11th, Corbett 18th. I'll be here on the 24th. And then Christmas Day is a Sunday. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, we'll just do the 10 o'clock service. It's, it's rare when it happens, but it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, warm Christmas morning all together for one service. So that's coming up. And I'm, I'm really excited about um, the holiday season as I, it just is a, a reawakening every year for me of something very, very special. Um, and when we look at the, the scripture. And so this morning, I, I've, uh, you got your notes. They're, they're very helpful. They're, they're kind of notes you might want to keep on your refrigerator and look at from time to time because I got a lot in there about prophecy. And so this morning, um, I want to start out with a true story. It was uh, September 19th, 1910 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Clarence Hiller woke up in the middle of the night and he heard a prowler in his house and he went to investigate and his wife heard the sounds of a scuffle and then tragically two gunshots and she found her husband Clarence dead at the foot of the stairs. Police arrested a fellow by the name of Thomas Jennings who was a convicted burglar less than a mile away. They found a gun. His arm was bloody but no one could identify him at the scene of the crime. What happened next would change the history of the American court system because earlier that day, Clarence had painted the trim on his house and in wet paint dried by now, police found four clear fingerprints that matched the intruders. And for the first time in history, and these are the actual fingerprints, uh, fingerprints were used to convict a man. And because the scientists proved that only one person's fingers could match those prints. That's where it all began. Well, when you look at the prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming of the Jewish Messiah, they are the fingerprints of God on who the Messiah is. And they are mind-blowing and they are staggering. And we don't talk about them enough. But if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, and you see the story of Adam and Eve's fall from grace for choosing their own idea of right and wrong because that's what they did instead of God's wonderful good system he provided for them. In the very shortly thereafter ensuing encounter, God tells Adam and Eve their fate, but he also tells the one who tempted them to disobey him, the enemy, the serpent of old Satan, this prediction. He said... I will cause hostility between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Interesting, huh? The offspring of Satan is those who are disobedient and have no desire to follow God. But he says, her offspring, and he will strike your head, he says. One is coming, 
It will be an eternal death blow to you, Satan. And you will strike his heel, a temporary wound. This is where you first hear of God's plan to rescue and redeem humanity after its fall from in, in um, the garden. And so if, if Jesus coming is that which we celebrate at Christmas, and he is indeed the coming Messiah of first the Jewish people, but then of all people that they, God may bless all nations on earth, how would we know who he is? This was the very first salvo, was this prediction right in the beginning of the Bible. Well, the ancient Christmas prophecies are predictions written. They're the fingerprints centuries earlier, centuries, even in some cases a millennium and a half before Christ arrived about what and who this Jewish Messiah would be. If you look in your notes, you, you can see uh, right across there, the top, he, he was going to be predicted uh, a descendant of Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith that God first pulled out. And then uh, Abraham had a son named Isaac, but he had two sons, Esau and Jacob. So which one would it be? It would be the younger twin, Jacob. And, and then Jacob had 12 sons. And which of those? He said, well, he will be a descendant of Judah's line of the 12, the son Judah. Nothing special about him, but that was the prophecy. And that's where the lineage of the Messiah would come through. And then ultimately, Isaiah would write later that he was going to be a in the lineage of King David's family himself. Matthew 1.1 details the legal lineage of Jesus as Messiah. And he says right there, he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. In fact, Matthew goes on to say there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, which we're going to talk about a little later, and 14 from that exile to when the arrival of the Messiah. And then the Bible gets more specific. It, it says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Micah prophesied that in 700 B.C. And to make sure we can't miss him, he will be born of a virgin, Isaiah says. Each step makes this fingerprint more specific. Now, how specific is it? Well, you may have heard of this book. I've mentioned it before called Science Speaks. It's written by Peter Stoner. It first was published on January 1st, 1958. And uh, I went to Amazon because I, I had a, a, a pastor I worked with here, Rene Schleffer, had this book in his library. That's why I can quote it so well because I have all the information from it. But I don't own the book. And I thought, it's about time I get this book. So I went on Amazon this week to see if I could buy one. And it was listed as a used paperback, third edition from 1969. I don't know. if You probably can't read that. But it's $165.99. <laughs> Clearly, it's not being published anymore, but it's very popular. And it's popular because Stoner was a mathematician, and he figured out the odds for these prophecies coming true in the life of one man by using the science known as compound. If you've ever been in a, a statistics course, compound probability. And, and let me just give you a really beginner one-on-one course in compound, compound probability, how it works. Uh, let's say one in 10 men has green eyes, Right? You need to find 10 men to find one with green eyes, right? But let's say you want to find a, a man with green eyes who has red hair, and, and it's one in 10 uh, then of each one, then you, you need to find 100 men, right? If one in 10 has red hair and one in 10 has green eyes, you need to find 100 men. And let's say you got one in 10 green-eyed, red-haired men, and one in 10 is bow-legged, right? You'd, you'd need to find 1,000 men to find that particular person. 
That's how compound probability works. Every time you add another factor, you increase the difficulty of the fulfillment. So it would be like me standing up here and, and announcing to you that there'll be another earthquake in California. Well, if you, if you know anything about earthquakes in California, they actually happen all the time. Uh, it just depends on what part of the seismic uh, Richter scale you want to qualify an earthquake because one just happened, I guarantee it. Um, so the odds of that coming true are what? 100%. I'm not really a great prophet to tell you that there's going to be an earthquake in California. But if I said there was going to be an earthquake of 7.0 or greater this coming January 2023, that increases the odds considerably that I might be wrong, right? What if I keep adding factors? What if I tell you the earthquake's going to happen on January 10th and it's going to measure a whopping 8.5 on the Richter scale and it will cause Lake Tahoe to drain into the Carson Valley and it will make Placerville a coastal community and it will hit precisely at 10.41 a.m. You got yourself some really big odds, don't you? So each prophecy about the Messiah decreases the probability that one person could fulfill any of it at all, right? So this mathematician Stoner took just eight prophecies and figured out the odds that they could come true at random. Uh, and here's the number he came up with. One in 10 to the 17th power. Uh, that's one in 100 million billion odds. Um, it's a big number. And how big is this number? Well, the state of California is a pretty big state. It's about 1,200 miles top to bottom, and it's probably a couple hundred left to right. And uh, if you cover that entire state in, in, to three feet deep in silver dollars, and you marked one silver dollar among them, and then you blindfold someone and tell them, put them in the middle of the state, stick them in Fresno, and say, wander wherever you will, but you're going to bend over and pick up one of those silver dollars, and it'll be marked with a red X. If you pick up the right one, that's the odds out of all those silver dollars would be one to 10 to the 17th power. The same odds that anyone in history could feel just eight of the prophecies of the coming Messiah written centuries beforehand. These are really serious odds, right? But there are more prophecies than just these eight. If you look at the list of these, there are just, these are just a few in your notes of the 60 major prophecies of the coming Messiah. He's going to be preceded by a messenger from the desert. He'll be a miracle worker. He'll enter Jerusalem on a donkey. His clothes will be parted and lots will be cast for them. He will be pierced. Um, it will take 30 pieces of silver uh, cast on a floor to betray him. And it will also be used to buy a field. Darkness will come over the land at his death. He will be buried in a rich man's tomb. This is a really specific fingerprint being laid out for us. So Stoner took 48 of these 60s and calculated the odds. And he came up with a number of a 1 in 10 to the 157th power. This, this, is, this is a number so big, we don't have a name for this. You, you and I can't really imagine this number. Um, I'll, I'll give you an inkling of how massive the odds are, odds are if you would just to take one of the smallest things we can think of is an atom, right? And you take an atom that is so small that it takes a million atoms lined up to equal the width of a human hair. Okay, so we're talking about tiny, right? And then you think of the biggest thing that we can think of, 
it would be the universe, right? The universe is so big that if the width, this is mind-blowing to me, you know, this is mind-blowing. The width of a piece of paper, right? Think of that width. You can't even measure it with your eye, right? It's just a cut your finger. It's so thin. The universe is so big that if the width of a sheet of paper you are holding represented the distance between our earth and our sun. That represents that distance, just the width of that paper. You'd need a stack of paper 75 feet high to represent the distance from the earth to the next nearest star, Alpha Centauri. And there are billions and billions of stars in our universe. You feeling small yet? Now, Lee Strobel, he used to write for the Chicago Tribune. He was an investigative journalist. His wife became, went to a Bible study and became a Christian. This is probably 30 years ago. And he was so mad. And being an investigative journalist of, of high quality, he said, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus isn't who he says he is or the Bible says he is. And he, he, he threw himself at it. And as a result of throwing himself at it, guess what happened? He became a Christian. And he's become a powerful author and pastor as a result of that experience. He calculated, after consulting with scientists, the compound probability that the odds of Jesus fulfilling all 48 of these prophecies would be um, the same as trying to find one specific atom in a universe that has billions of stars and an uncountable amount of atoms, okay? It's just, this can't happen. It's just an impossible number, right? But, but just to show you how big this 1 in 10 to the um, 157th power is, it means that you'd have to look for that one atom not in one universe. This is beyond our brains. Trillion, 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 billion universe the size of our universe. That's how big this number is. That's how big these odds are. That's what 1 in 10 to the 157th power uh, means. It's beyond staggering. Uh, it makes the odds of a finding a marked silver dollar in California child's play. Uh, the impossible number, and yet what happened? It came true in the life of one person. And I know people say, well, Jesus was, and I've heard this before, Jesus was really clever and his apostles were conniving and they purposely fulfilled all these prophecies. Well, the simple answer to that is there's just way too many prophecies out of human control, right? Our lineage, our place of birth, how we're going to die in another person's hand, on and on and on. Um, these prophecies really came true against all these insurmountable odds. And I have always said this, when you study prophecy in the scripture, especially stuff that's ancient, that's been written centuries before it ever is, takes place, and then it takes place, you know. We, we've got these uh, psychics at this time of year always come out at the beginning of the new year and tell us what's going to happen in the coming year, right? And I think it would be a great book if someone actually went back and did the homework on how many of them ever made anything correct, let alone perfect correction, you know, on what, what's going to happen in the future. Because I, I can assure you it's less than 5%. Uh, it's a hit and miss swing, and your odds of getting 1 out of 20 is probably just luck, right? But what we know about the Bible's prophetic words are they didn't come from men. 
Peter, later writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit, says, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, no future telling ever came from these guys themselves or because they wanted to prophesy, right? It was simply the Holy Spirit arrived and gave them a message and who moved the prophets to speak from God. A being so powerful that he is the creator or he, she is the creator because he made us in his image, male and female. Everything that we know and sustains all life. I was pondering this this morning and I was considering the, the weight of creation, what it is and my existence and my consciousness and yours and history and the billions of people that have lived in this one little planet and all this talk about all these stars and all this and maybe aliens and this and that, you know, and yet here we are on this little blue marble. And yet this universe is just massive, right? But here we are. And this God has spoken to us, this creator being, this almighty God who is. Our picture of life is too small. And when I read Paul writing in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? I think it helps believers feel good about their faith when you can tangibly look at evidence of prophetic fulfillment, right? But does it really convince people that are skeptical? Well, in some cases, it does. It just depends. Louis Lapides, um, he grew up nominally Jewish, and he rejected his faith, he says, when he went to Vietnam. And when he came back, he says he got into Eastern religion, and he checked out different forms of Buddhism and Hinduism and even Scientology. He says none of it clicked. You know, he was basically an agnostic is what he was. He said one day he went back to his Jewish roots and he started reading the Old Testament, which is what we call it, it's the Hebrew scriptures. He says, I wouldn't touch the New Testament because of my background as a Jew. And he said he saw prophecy after prophecy clearly about Jesus right there in the Old Testament writings. He says, I was shocked because I realized it was either believe this or throw objectivity out the window. He's uh, been a teacher at Biola Bible College for years, and he's also a pastor in Southern California, this Jewish man. Stan Telchin, another uh, Jewish man, an East Coast businessman, uh, set out to expose what he called the cult of Christianity after his daughter went away to college and, and came back home a Christian, right? How dare they? <laughs> and uh, this is the story of Doug and Diane Rosner that go to church here, their daughter Jenny. And I remember when I met Doug and Diane in 2000, we, we were remodeling this building. We were at Alta Hall Elementary School uh, around the Christmas season. And I knew Doug, and I, and I knew he was Jewish. And I go, what are you doing here? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> but my daughter became a Christian. I got to figure out what this is all about, right? Well, this is what happened to Stan Telchin. In fact, Stan Telchin's book, Betrayed, was really big to Doug in his journey. Anyway, Stan Telchin's daughter, Judy, phoned him and told him... Um, 
with great caution that she had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He goes, I was speechless. I was outraged. I felt betrayed. But then he writes, as I studied the Hebrew scriptures, a particular significance to me was Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where God promised to make a new covenant with the Jewish people. He goes, how, after all my years of synagogue, could I not know of this promise? He said, then there was Proverbs 34, which spoke of God's son. And then, of course, the 22nd Psalm, which revealed what would be Jesus hanging on a tree. And Isaiah chapter 53, well, it's explained that our sins were placed on him and that he was punished instead of us. And Daniel 9, which prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed along with the temple by the prince. This would be General Titus, who would come after the Messiah had been killed. So there's a prophecy that said, you know, Jerusalem's going to be flattened after the Messiah is killed. And, and it happened. And he knew it happened in 70 AD. He goes, I was stunned. His investigation led him, his wife, and his other daughter to faith in Jesus. Jack Sternberg, prominent cancer physician in Little Rock, Arkansas, he says, I, I wanted to know God, and I was determined to follow him no matter where this journey would take me. He goes, it would just be so, he says, it would just be so much easier if I didn't have to become a Christian because I wanted desperately to discover the God that I sought somehow through my mainstream Judaism faith, right? So he had heard the rumblings. But he said, I, I really want to know God. So he went into the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. He goes, my Jewish Christian phys physician friend and his wife told us how the Jewish Bible and the New Testament fit together. And he suggested to me that if Jesus fulfilled these Hebrew prophecies concerning the Messiah, then Christians are worshiping the Jewish Messiah. He goes, I was reading the Hebrew Scripture. When he goes, I became alarmed. <laughs> He kept reading prophecies about what would be Jesus. He challenged three of his Jewish friends who were non-believers to prove them, disprove them for him, but they couldn't. And he says he received Jesus as his Messiah too. Um, Peter Greenspan, he's an OBGYN in Kansas City and a, uh, an associate professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Med School. Why am I pointing these guys out? Well, they're all Jewish but they're all sharp guys. He says, just as a hobby, he tried to disprove that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah by going back to the Hebrew writings of the Talmud and the Torah. And instead, he concluded that Jesus did miraculously fulfill all the prophecies and that he was the Messiah. He says, I actually came to faith in Jesus by, what, by reading what the detractors wrote, trying to disprove him. It just because it made no sense. And perhaps one of my more favorite stories on this topic occurred on um, um, June 27th in, in 1993 uh, in, in near Chicago. A crowd of 8,000 people heard a widely publicized debate between, um, oh, what was the guy? Frank Zindler. He was, the, he was kind of the spokesman for the atheists back in those days, 30 years ago. And, um, and, and then William Lane Craig, uh, was the Christian apologist who, who debated him. The key that, of Craig's talk that night was the messianic prophecies, the fulfilled messianic prophecies. He just was pulling out what I'm pulling out today and showing people these things happened. 
At the end of the uh, debate, they polled a portion of the audience, and of the 632 people polled who came that weren't Christians in the poll, 505 of them said the Christian view had won the day. 47 of those who walked in as atheists walked out as Christian. And by the way, nobody became an atheist. <laughs> so, powerful, powerful perspective on, on what we believe, not just a blind faith, but a faith in something that's very real and can be tested. Um, you know, it is Christmas time, and I, I want to, as I wrap up here, it's 24 minutes, and you're going, oh, this is, this is a Christmas miracle. Um, <laughs> I, I want to <laughs> take a look at uh, one unique prophecy that we have in the Christmas story. I want to look at the story of, of the wise men um, that we know of in Scripture. You know, we sing the song, we three kings of Orient are, you know. Uh, you probably know the wise men weren't kings at all. They were actually priests of Zoroasterism, and, and they were from the Medo-Persian the Medo Empire, which is modern-day uh, Iran, Iraq. Uh, they were the scientists and, and the mathematicians of their country. They were very powerful politically. Uh, our, our words magic and magistrate comes from that name magi, Right? So the, the obvious question is, and it really is a good question, is where did these powerfully connected scientists, mathematician, priests hear about a poor baby in Bethlehem? You know, we do know there was a star of Bethlehem, and that's a mystery unto itself, how that appeared and what it looked like and how it moved these guys from a thousand miles away in what we would call at that time ancient Babylon seems absolutely incredible. But it's just historically recorded that they came to Jerusalem, right? So what's the connection? Well, there is a connection, and it's mind-blowing. If you remember, um, in the book of Daniel, Daniel and two of his friends, or excuse me, three of his friends, their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but their, their, their uh, Jewish names, uh, Azariah, man, I am hanging myself out to dry in front of you here. Um, Daniel, of course, was with the fourth. I, I don't remember the other two. You have to go look that up in Daniel chapter one. But they were taught, hauled away. Three times Nebuchadnezzar came down and raided. 605, um, 595 B.C., and then 587 B.C., he flattened Jerusalem and tore the temple down and everything. But in 605, he just came down there and took the best and the brightest because... He was king of Babylon. They ruled the world. And so he took Daniel back to Babylon with him. And something strange happened. This young exiled Jewish man, probably in his late teens, um, interprets by the power of God because he was such a devout Jewish young man and God honored Daniel because of his faith. He helped interpret a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had who went to his own magi and he said, I want you guys to tell me what my dream was about. And they said, sure, king, tell us what their dream was. And, to, and listen to this. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was nobody's fool. He says, I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. You tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. And they go, that's impossible. He says, you got 30 days. I kill you all unless you come up with an answer for me. 
Daniel has the dream that tells him what his dream was and what the dream meant and goes and tells the Magi, I know what the dream is. And so he presents himself to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him and Nebuchadnezzar is blown away. Truly, here is someone who can see into the great things, right? Nebuchadnezzar tells him. And so then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him and he made him ruler over the entire providence of Babylon and praised placed him in charge of all its magi. Okay? Daniel chapter 2. Some years later, Daniel, very devout, very devout Jewish man, always does the prayers three times a day. He's in the evening prayers. He's fasting and he's wearing sackcloth, which is a heavy burlap um, costume, that, uh, dress that's just very uncomfortable to be in. He's not eating. He's praying. He's fasting. And he's confessing the sins of Israel to God. He's a broken man before the Lord and, and the angel Gabriel comes to him. And here he is, the chief magi. And he receives a prophecy from the angel Gabriel. And, and, and this is what he hears. Gabriel says, now, isn't it interesting, Gabriel? Here he is again, Christmas story stuff, huh? Now listen and understand Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Let me just give you a really quick, real quick background on this. Seven is big with God and the Jewish people. It's used in everything. Seven days of the week, seven, uh, seven years to the Sabbath year, seven times seven to the Jubilee year. It's all about this number seven, right? So when he says seven sets of seven, he's talking about um, uh, 49 years. Why 49 years? Why is that distinct from the 62 sets of seven, which is 434 years? Because from the time that Daniel received this prophecy until the time that Jerusalem would be rebuilt under Nehemiah and others, another 49 years had to pass. They were still in Babylon. And he goes, um, it, it, it's, but this is after the time that the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. This is how long this is going to take. So this is, this is a prophecy within a prophecy. He's saying Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. One, it's, we, he doesn't know when, but it's going to be 49 years before that project's done. And then, the, then 434 years are going to pass before the Messiah shows up in Jerusalem. A total of 483 years. Well, if you go back to one verse, there's actually 70 weeks of Daniel. There's still a one seven-year period left to be played out on history that hasn't been played out. Where do you read about that? The book of Revelation. And, and what was the point? Go read Daniel 9.24. I didn't put it on the screen for you because I'm trying to keep this message under an hour. <laughs> it says that that this is the timeline for God to bring all iniquity and all sin and end all evil fully. Now, it's segmented by thousands of years, but he's talking about these 490 years. Seven are yet to be played out. So, as clearly as Daniel could have stated it, he says that in 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem has been issued, the Messiah would arrive on earth. That's a pretty specific fingerprint. And to make it more interesting, in verse 26, it says here, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be put to death and will have nothing. And prophet shouldn't be up there. That word 
should have been deleted by me. It's part of my, how I paste and cut. So basically 483 years, and there's two major compilations of this prophecy. One is 173,880 days, and the other one I think is a little bit different, not, not much. One calendar counter set the countdown date for the rebuild uh, as an order from King Artaxerxes from Persia as uh, um, a, a March 14th, in 445 B.C., another outfit that did the counting on this put it at March 5th, 40, 444 B.C. And they have to adjust for all kinds of crazy things, leap years, and then uh, there, there are times you, you have to drop years because of leap, you know, drop days because of leap years, but then every 400 years, they, there's something else, they, they add a day. So there's a lot to do. And then you're shifting from a Jewish calendar of 360 days to a Julian calendar to a Gregorian calendar, which we have today with 365 and leap years. So it's a lot of, it's, it's nuanced, right? No one's going to be perfect with this because to pick a day. But just to give you the example of what I'm talking about, the, the first one that used March 14th, 445 BC, calculated that the day of the prophecy would be fulfilled after all these calculations corresponding to our own Gregorian calendar as April 6, 32 AD. That's pretty specific. Specific. That's a timeline. The other one comes out to March 30th, 30 AD. What's interesting, in both those dates, that April 6th and March 30th of 30 AD, they're both Sundays. It would, it would take that to mean that would be the date that Jesus would ride triumphantly into Jerusalem upon a donkey. We celebrate as Palm Sunday. Now, interestingly enough, I'll take the first count that I have up there, April 6th. The New Testament records that Jesus' public ministry began in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. That's in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Tiberius' reign began in 14 AD. So if Jesus began in the 15th year of his reign, that puts you at 29 AD, and you add in a little time that Jesus ministered publicly, ministered publicly before his death, three years is, is the generally accepted timeline of Jesus' public ministry that bumps you to 32 AD. That that's the year he would have rode in on that Palm Sunday, that Passover. The Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England, the keepers of the clock confirmed that the Sunday before Passover in the year 32 AD was April 6th. So whatever dating you want to begin with, and the decree to rebuild Jerusalem did take place in some 483 years later, not some, exactly 483 years, three years later, whenever that decree started the clock ticking, Jesus appears. Now, here's the whole point with Daniel. The Magi. Now, literally almost six centuries since the time that he had made that prophecy, were aware of Daniel's prophecy. Of course they were aware of it. And they were waiting for this event. And then they get a star and who knows what other information God gave them supernaturally to follow that star. But here they come to Jerusalem, about 200 of them riding on horses, Arabians, not camels. And remember, Herod was shook up. Where is the new king to be born, Herod says. And he calls out the prophecy of Micah. He will be born in Bethlehem. And you remember what King Herod did. He went down there and slaughtered every boy two years and under. Because he didn't want this new king. Jesus escaped to Egypt. And that's another prophecy. He will, say, he will be said to come from Egypt. 
So the, the story of the wise men takes on the character of myth until you realize the truth is out there of how these stories connected. The greatest messianic prophecy in my humble opinion is in Isaiah chapter 53. We've quoted it many, many times. It's an entire chapter that you cannot read and not see Jesus in it while you're reading it. It was originally thought to have been added by Christians centuries after the writing because Isaiah wrote in 700 B.C., so many were thinking it was written, you know, somewhere in the first century A.D. and added in, and so no one had any records, so they couldn't prove it or disprove it until the Dead Sea Scrolls came along. Because the oldest manuscript we had of the book of Isaiah was from 900 A.D., so it was easy to make the assertion that Christians threw that chapter in there to solidify their messianic prophecy of Jesus because it's just so specific who they're talking about in that. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were dated 200, 300 actually, to 100 A.D. So at least 1,000 years older than any other previous Isaiah they had on record in 1940. Seven. So what, guess what everybody says? Now you're going to see chapter 53 isn't in there. But it is! <laughs> I got to see that bad boy in the book of the museum in Jerusalem. There it was. It's just amazing. I, I mean, if you ever have a doubt, read Isaiah 53 and just go, if the enemy's working you and you're doubting God and you're doubting Christ, look at Isaiah 53 and go, wait a minute. This was written seven centuries before he came. Listen to the accuracy of this. He says, who has believed our message? To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? All of us are straight away like sheep. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. What I love about this passage is God knows we've strayed, and yet he comes for us anyway. But who among the people realized he was dying for their sins, that he was suffering their punishment? You know, that's the Christmas story. When you realize he came to die for you, I say, can you really afford to ignore these prophecies? Can you foresee the day of meeting the Lord and confessing? I didn't buy into it. This is the teeth of truth. God gives these things. How can you? This really happened. Here it is. Don't let skepticism and doubt take away the facts. That's God's real Christmas gift to you is prophecy. John chapter 14. Jesus is going away. And Philip asked Jesus, um, slow on the the clicker today. Sorry about that. He asked Jesus to show us the Father. He wanted to see God. And Jesus' response is remarkable. He goes, have I been with you so long, Phil, that you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? One of my favorite bloggers, Sky Jafani, Sky says, Jesus is essentially saying to Philip, I'm right here. 
You don't have to look any further. You don't need any more elaborate procedures or secret knowledge. God isn't hiding from you. I'm out in the open for everyone to see. This is the great reality of Jesus' advent. He has come to show us finally and fully who God is and what he is like. And obviously, he's a God of great love and mercy to do what Jesus did. D.A. Carson, great biblical scholar, he puts it this way. Do you want to know the, what the character of God is like? Do you really want to know who God is? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the holiness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the forgiveness of God is like? Study Jesus. And do you want to know what the glory of God is like? Study Jesus. All the way to that wretched cross. Study Jesus. May you be amazed at his coming this holiday season. But may you be more amazed at his sacrifice for you. That its truth will humble you and make you so gracious and so compassionate to others that you can't help but tell his story through your life and words. Let's pray. Father, we sit here as people of faith. Maybe some this morning searching for faith. In whatever case we might find ourselves, I just wish you would pour out on our hearts and on our thoughts the reality of all these things that are written are true. Therefore, if they're true, then everything else is true because you are the almighty God who has made sure that your message would not go unnoticed. I am grateful for not my, only myself, but each and every one of us here that has heard and understood that you are who you say you are and that your compassion and mercy is your greatest characteristic. So it is, it is no stretch to believe that you would literally be a just God, but take the punishment on yourself for us in order to bring us back. Thank you for such compassion and mercy. May we be like you in this world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We'll have the ushers come forward. Good kickoff to Christmas, huh? Amen. Amen.